Hello again to another really fun episode of Science with Milk, No Sugar, where we don't sugarcoat anything. My name is Francisca and I'm your hostess. Today we have another really, really great guest. It's my friend Tayana, who is a journalist and she started out as a neurobiologist, as many of my friends have. It's just such a great coincidence to see how they all ended up starting out with the same degree. (laughs) So today we're talking about how you make the jump from being a scientist, you know, student, doing your research, to full-time writing, and what the hurdles are, what the rewards are, how you even do that, what skills do you have to have. So if you're wondering how to become maybe a full-time writer or a freelance writer, then this episode is definitely for you. I learned a lot of stuff about the topic that I did not know before, and a lot of stuff about my friend that I didn't know, which is really exciting for me. So I hope you enjoy this. If you stick around to the end, there are some, well, not bloopers, but cutouts <laughs> that I wanted to keep around, but didn't fit in with the rest of the episode. But it was really, really fun. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as we have recording it. So we'll jump right in, get a cup of coffee, and let's go. we're both here it's early but we did it and i'm very excited because this is the second time we're recording so i'm extra happy that you're here right now and of course. Um, yeah i think you were actually one of the first guests i interviewed ever maybe the first one but oh, really? yeah okay. but we were in like a um, co-working space do you remember and people kept coming and going and doors yeah. were banging and i was like this is unusable <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that. There was this one guy on the phone. Yes. And I was like, oh, no. And he's like, yeah, no, no, no. I have to have this meeting now. It's like, oh, right yeah. next to us. It's like, no. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, this time it will be quieter. So thank you again, Diana, for making time. And this is like the second round. But I think the questions I all want to ask you they're still the same, but because it's been so long, I don't even remember everything we talked about, you know, how usually, you know, yeah. you sway a little bit from the questions anyway. Let's just um, get into it. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, who are you? Where did you grow up? What did you study? Introduce um, Diana a little bit to the listeners. Sure. Um, so I, well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, I grew <laughs> up in Toronto. And I started off with a, I mean, I had an interest in science from early on. I can't pinpoint exactly how early it was, but uh, I guess before university. And then when I went into university, I focused on the life sciences because I wanted to go to med school. But then I decided, no, med school is not for me. I want to be a researcher because I was really interested in the brain and wanted to learn more about how the brain works. So I went to, um, after my undergrad, I did a master's in neuroscience, um, studying memory decline with age um, at McGill. And yeah. And then after that, should I keep going? (laughs) Um, uh, And then after that, I decided that science was not really the thing I wanted to do, even though I was interested in it. So um, that's when I decided to make the transition to journalism. So you said really early on you were interested in science. I always 
find that interesting because for me it was like the opposite I was really bad at like chemistry and physics and math oh god I failed math so many times but I also ended up in science so I always think it's interesting how people get together and we end up here together now but come from completely different parts of the world and different interests and I had a few people in the past on the podcast who study the brain and I think that's so amazing I never really had Like human biology had a lot of like animal behavior and you know like more like that zoology and things like that but to me the brain has always been very intimidating <laughs> it just seems like so complex and we still don't know a lot of things is that what uh, initially drew you to that before you decided well maybe not I'm not sure if it was that it was necessarily more complex than anything else. I think I've always wanted to know like why people do the things that they do. So one of the first labs I was in in um, undergrad was in a decision-making lab, which I thought mm. was really cool because mm. it was like, how and why do we make decisions? And um, I think for me, I was really interested in, for example, this question of do we have free will or how much free will do we have? And when you actually get down to the kind of neuro, um, the the very like basic, sorry, early words, uh, <laughs> the very like basic processes that control that at the neuronal level. Um, yeah, that question becomes more interesting. And yeah, so that's, I think that's what drew me to it. Just like wanting to know why we do the things that we do. And I think part of it may have stemmed from me, like not being able to understand, like, why do I do the things that they do? I do please like help me explain me to myself. So, I still like, I don't know these things yeah. <laughs> about myself. And I also yeah. often struggle to understand why other people do what they do. Because I mm. reflect a, a lot. And I think the, the first thing that came to mind when you said like, oh, you know, decision making and free will, I thought like, that's almost like philosophy. Sure. <laughs> But, yeah, you for know. sure. And um, I think about that a lot. So it's definitely um, relatable why you were interested in that. Is, is that also why um, or doing your undergrad that you started to write? Because you're a science journalist, right? Was that also something that you knew early on or did you kind of fall into that? Um, I definitely didn't know that when I was an undergrad. Um, I didn't even know that becoming a science journalist was a possibility. Um, I don't actually think I did much writing during my undergrad other than like writing papers and things like this. I mean, I did a history minor because I was always kind of interested in like the sort of arts part of arts and science um, mm -hmm. as well. So in that sense, I always enjoyed writing essays and doing these kinds of assignments, but like I never did the kind of science writing thing until I got to grad school. So in grad school, um, how did this happen? Did you immediately decide, I I'm going to apply to work at a journal? Or did you work at university? Um, did you get writing experience there? How do you even start out doing something like that? Once I decided I wanted to learn how to write, or at least to write journalistically, I just kind of looked around for opportunities on campus. And McGill has um, a couple of student newspapers. So I just showed up at one of their meetings. Uh, they have a science and technology section. I showed up at that meeting and I think they just kind of give out assignments to people who are interested in writing. And I took one and I enjoyed that. So I just kind of kept going with that um, and stayed with that new student newspaper for sort of the entire time I was in grad school. Uh, it took up a lot of time, probably more <laughs> than <laughs> more than my actual uh, studies at some point, which I'm sure my supervisor was not very pleased about. But <laughs> I think once I started, I realized this is super cool. This is what I want to do. And then once I 
you know, really got into that. I started researching more about how to do these things. And yeah, and then things sort of fell into place, not in a super neat and nice way, but, you know, sort of gradually over time. Mm-hmm. Here I am now. And if you work at a student newspaper, my only experience is from watching Gilmore Girls, okay, and knowing you. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that my experience in knowing what's going on there is very limited. Do you actually have real journalists or maybe professors who supervise your writing or help you out? Or is this really just is like a student body, you know, where everybody helps each other out, but on a student level? Do you have mentors or something like that when you work at a student newspaper? I think at that student newspaper... There wasn't anyone who was actively there at all the meetings. Um, I think there were some students who were studying journalism, for example. Mm. Um, but a lot of the mentorship just came from people who had been at the newspaper longer, so they had more experience. Um, so, I mean, I would say that they're still journalists. They're student journalists. So I think there's a lot of things that you don't really know yet and you kind of learn as you go. But in terms of like the process, a lot of it was in a way quite similar to what I do now, but perhaps in a sort of less rigorous way because you're students and you're sort of really trying to figure things out. Um, yeah. But it was intense. I remember like our, we, it would publish weekly and every, I think it was Friday night, we would have to finish the issue for the week. And there were nights you'd just be there till like four or 5 a.m. just finishing these articles. And <laughs> it was, it was fun, but it was also really, really exhausting. Thanks. Especially if you like quotation marks, just still a student right yeah <laughs> you have other responsibilities exactly. yeah so it was like after the lab I leave the lab at like five go straight to the newspaper room which was in this kind of basement in this in the one of the main buildings on campus and just stay there until 4 a.m so um do you remember the first thing you ever wrote about for the newspaper is it something no. you keep <laughs> no it's been too long <laughs> it's been it's been way too long um And to be honest, like some of the stuff I look back and I'm like, I cringe a little bit because there were a lot of things I didn't know that I know now that I would have done differently. Yeah, I can't remember exactly which, what, exactly uh, what the first article was, but there were a couple that I think I had a, a lot of fun writing. I may have written an article about free will <laughs> at some point. Um, There it is. But <laughs> yeah, now it's, it's just a blur because it was so long ago. Another question is out of curiosity. How does a student newspaper if you know this if, if you don't that's fine um, how do they finance everything like do you know this because it just came to me that I thought you know like the printing and everything um, and the facilities you're using that probably costs money yeah. so um, does the newspaper just cost something and students have to pay to read it uh, it's part of the student fees so everyone mm. pays it as part of the student fees so that subsidizes the newspaper and actually like the editors on the newspaper we got paid a little bit so like mm -hmm. a very small stipend for the work that we did which was also nice because it was a lot of work yeah yeah yeah. yeah. no that's interesting because i also know when i um studied in montana we had a student newspaper and i knew someone who worked on it but he did comics um and we never really talked a lot about the newspaper i just like looked at his comics basically um and he was also a, ge a geologist like me so lots of them were very like rock themed <laughs> <laughs> so <Fun>. I enjoyed <laughs> that but but yeah okay that's that's really interesting I never really thought about this in the past because most of my education took place in Germany where 
because we don't pay student fees and um, you know everything is basically also paid by taxes, we don't have a lot of these like student clubs or student newspapers. And I know people study journalism, obviously here, but I'm really not not aware of anything like that at any German news uh, um, like university or anything like that. So it's really as for me as a complete outsider who doesn't know a lot um, about how stuff happens in North America it's really interesting really cool that this even exists for people to get experience so uh, to me it sounds really great of course it's a lot of work mm-hmm. but it almost sounds very glamorous like yeah I was a student but you know I worked for the newspaper it just sounds really cool <laughs> yeah it was really cool and I think it was really for me it was very crucial in sort of developing the skills and building a portfolio that I needed to mm-hmm sort of jumpstart the rest of my career. This is actually my next question, because you write about science and you mentioned this before, like what, um, even when you were a student, um, that was kind of like your thing. If you want to be a professional journalist, is a science degree enough? Or did you, after your grad school, decided, okay, I'm going to get a, another little letter that says, hey, I studied journalism, or how... Um, How does this work? Can you just get the experience, get a portfolio, and then as a scientist apply to write as a science journalist? Is this the um, quotation marks only qualification you need? Or how do you even apply to journals to write? Do you just send samples of your writing? What? How do you even do that? When, so when I was still in my master's and finishing off and trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to follow this career, I did think about doing another master's um, in science journalism. There are some really great programs, mostly in the US, uh, that are very expensive, that provide that kind of training. Um, but for me, there were two factors that kind of turned me off to that. One was the price. I didn't want to pay more for education, uh, <laughs> a lot more because it was the US. And uh, I was also just impatient. I didn't want to do more school. Uh, so instead, I just started applying to some internships instead to build that experience through internships as opposed to journalism school, um, because I'd heard from some people that that's the way to go. And actually, um, so during my undergrad, um, while I was going to science conferences for my scientific work, I kind of sort of sneakily networked with some of the journalists at the conference too, because every science conference or most science conferences have journalists there sort of covering what's going on. At one conference, I had met this one editor um, at Scientific American uh, who I asked out to lunch and, you know, sort of asked her some questions. And yeah, she, I think she had suggested to just apply to internships or try to apply to internships. And so I did. So I applied to a bunch of big magazines like Scientific American, Science News, all of this stuff. Um, but at the same time, I also applied to some communications internships. So things where you work at like a science lab and you're in their comms office doing some both like the internal and external um, pieces to share what the, the lab is doing with the public. And uh, while I didn't get any of the magazines um, right away, those are a lot more competitive. I did mm-hmm. get an internship at a physics lab Yeah, to be in the comms office at Fermilab, um, which was actually really cool because I had always been interested in particle physics and I had never really gotten the chance to learn a lot about it. So, um, so yeah, right after grad school, I moved to Chicago and I stayed for six months there just learning a ton about particle physics and the universe and stuff that things are made of and having my mind sort of blown by, uh, yeah, these really, really smart people 
in this area of science that I knew really nothing about. Yeah, that's a long answer to your question. But um, I think just to sort of sum it up, I don't think you need a journalism de- degree to be a science journalist. But at the same time, I also don't think you need a science degree either. Um, there are mm. a lot of people who've really made, who've really done well in this career, who sort of come from English degrees or journalism degrees, and they learn the science through the reporting process and, you know, the learning that just goes into the learning that you do every time you do a new story. So, mm-hmm. yeah. See, I've known you for a lot of le- a lot of years. <laughs> I think maybe like, I don't know, almost seven, eight years, something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. something like that. And I didn't know that this was actually the, I, I knew that you were in Chicago and I always thought that's really cool because we talked a little bit about, you know, Chicago in the past and love it there. But I had no idea it was a physics lab. <laughs> so this is new information for me. That's really cool. That's another thing that really intimidates me <laughs> besides the brain, you know. Particle physics just sounds so intense to me. It's not just, you know, physics that I find difficult. <laughs> but it's particle physics that just sounds like it's a next, it's next level. <laughs> Isn't it intimidating to try and learn a lot about it? a topic from scratch in order to be able to properly write about it. I know scientists do this a lot because they're not expert on every topic they write about. But if you're very new and it's a topic that's very far removed from what you did in the past, were you ever like really scared? <laughs> Or um, did it just kind of come, you know, it, it was just mostly fun and you just learned a lot and you were happy to do it? Um, I think a bit of both. There's definitely a lot of intimidation that comes with covering a topic that I know nothing about. But at the same time, I find that it's it's more exciting sometimes because if I'm writing about something I know a lot, I already have, I'm already coming with uh, a big amount of knowledge to, um, while it's interesting, it's, I feel like what I learn is sort of more incremental than if I'm in this particle physics lab for the first time and learning about how somebody studies like antimatter, for example, like everything is new, everything's exciting. And Mm -hmm. I think, especially if I have a source or a scientist who's um, really good at explaining what they do, it can be sort of a lot of fun to learn. And it can also sometimes make it easier for me to write my articles, which are meant for the general public, because I'm not in the expert mindset anymore. I'm in like the a sort of newbie mindset. So I'm in, I feel that it's easier to get into the mindset of the reader because I'm already mm-hmm. there. So I find it easier to sort of explain things where sometimes with neuroscience topics, I find myself sort of getting more jargony, getting into the weeds more because I'm just so used to it. So I have to kind of step out and put myself once again in the kind of, yeah, to, in a layperson's shoes. Whereas that's a good point. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I, I know, I know what you mean, obviously. Um, I'm not a neurobiologist, but in the field that I was in, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know about this. And then <laughs> I know you get yeah. um, kind of in your head. And uh, But that is a good mindset to have, I guess, to think about who is going to read this and are they going to mm-hmm. understand that. So I always try to, whenever I try to explain something, I try to think, would my mother understand that? <laughs> my, my mother doesn't come from uh, academia or she, like, she didn't study has a very practical job. So I always think like, okay, this is so far removed from anything that she's been interested in the past or that she knows something about. Would she understand if I explain it like this? And that has helped me so mm-hmm. much in my science communication career. I know everybody has um, 
different techniques, but this is definitely mine. <laughs> That's a good it's, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would she understand this? Would she find this boring? Yeah. Or another one that I actually shared with my boyfriend the other day. He tried to explain um, something very like economics, not not necessarily just what a recession is. I've learned this the hard way, <laughs> especially like right now. But it was something about economics, and I pulled a. Michael Scott from the office and I said explain it to me like I'm five <laughs> because he used all these like words that was like no absolutely not I do not I don't understand <laughs> and that actually yeah. I think helped yeah. him it's like explain it to me like I'm a child and that worked <laughs> yeah for sure that 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 one always works I find as well yeah yeah do you so when you work on uh, or if, if you work uh, at a journal or you know or you work on a on a piece that you're writing do you know how non-scientists or like journalists who don't have a science background feel when scientists write in newspapers like do you think there is a lot of rivalry like suddenly there is this person here that is not a journalist i went to journalism school and now the scientist is here writing do you think is um it feels like there's some kind of competition in the field because if you don't actually have to go and study journalism anymore and you come from a different field and end up there, do you think um, people who study journalism and work at the same newspaper compete for the same jobs, um, that that is something that they worry about, something they don't like? Yeah, have you ever worked with someone who went to journalism school who maybe was like, oh, okay, so you're a scientist, mm -hmm. you know, like, is there any, ever any rivalry or is it just, this is our job and we get on with it? I guess so. Um, first of all, like I would characterize myself as a journalist, not a scientist now. I'm mm -hmm. just because I feel like I'm in that role. So in, th in that sense, I feel like with other science journals, everyone is always like super friendly. It doesn't matter where you come from or, you know, what background you have. Everyone everyone I've met has been has been lovely. And there's a really a sense of camaraderie, I think, among science journalists where we love what we do. And I, I think it's a little bit less cutthroat than something like political journalism or some other areas mm. of journalism where people are perhaps more on edge all the time. Maybe there's more competition for the sources because, you know, you all want to talk to the same politician. You all want to talk to like the same people. Whereas in science journalism, there's just so much that there's enough for everyone. I think the other part of the question in terms of like when scientists write in, in, newspaper, in newspapers or magazines or whatever, um, because like, for example, a magazine like Scientific American publishes articles by working scientists as well as articles by science journalists. Um, I think there's, in that sense, I, don't, I would, would also say there's no rivalry there and that there's sort of two different types of writing, in my opinion. When a scientist is writing, they're writing about their work, they're advocating for their work. Whereas when a journalist is writing, they're stepping back and they're taking a more objective view of that work. So you're getting multiple perspectives from the field as opposed to a scientist who gives their perspective, which is also very valuable, but I think they're sort of fundamentally different things. So I think there's sort of room for, for everyone uh, in this space to, to, yeah, to share their words. And is there a lot of collaboration? Because you said you as a journalist take a step back and write about stuff, but is, do you ever not just 
interview is another scientist do they actually sometimes write with you or is this solely something that you do and they um, give you the information on their work i mean in the case when if you are publishing something or is this usually just like i'm the journalist and this is my source more like that um, for me it's always i'm the journalist and this is my source um, there are certain instances when a journalist and a scientist will write collaboratively like books for example oftentimes journalists and scientists will write them together but I think when I'm sort of doing my day-to-day -day work, it's really important for me to keep that source boundary. Like, I guess I wouldn't refer to it as a collaboration in the sense that, you know, you're my source, you're telling me about the work that you do or the view that you have on this topic, but I'm taking your words and looking at it from a more objective perspective, making sure that, you know, the article that I'm writing is not just sharing this one person's view, but is looking sort of more broadly at, yeah, what, what other people in the field say. Because often, you know, in science, there are, science is not objective. Everyone comes to it with their own views and their own desires to, you know, uplift their own work. But also, you know, you have certain ideas of like what, <laughs> uh, you come to it with, with, with your own sort of um, subjective views. So I think um, it's really important for me because oftentimes, for example, a scientist will ask, like, can I read your article before it gets published? And I always, so magazines will say the editorial policy is most times no, because we don't want that article to be skewed in favor of one person's views. Because, mm -hmm. if, you know, if somebody looks over it, you know, ultimately, you know, they're going to only want, want to insert their own views. And I think this is oftentimes is often controversial because scientists, you know, I think they come to it wanting to just make sure there are no errors, but it's just one of those longstanding principles in journalism. And I think one of the sort of easiest ways to look at this is, you know, comparing it to like political journalism, right? If you read an article about a bunch of politicians, you wouldn't send it back to the politicians to look at before it gets published, because then obviously, you know, it would be, it would be skewed uh, mm -hmm. in their favor. So I think, while science is not politics, we have to apply, we do apply the same sort of broad journalistic principles to that, if that yeah. makes sense. No, totally. I, this is something that I learned through the years because I was interviewed a bunch of times by journalists writing about my work or what my, you know, my colleagues and I were doing. And in the beginning, I was just so nervous because I knew they would write about me and my work. I thought, what if it, what if I accidentally said something that they picked up on and now they're going to write about it and it's going to be not in my favor or, you know, like my, my very first experience, I was very, very nervous and not suspicious necessarily, but I had no control and I'm someone who loves <laughs> being in control and knowing what's going to happen and what the outcome hopefully will be and stuff like that. But over the years, it's something I, um, like the, I don't do this anymore. Now I'm just like, they, they're the expert in their job. <laughs> I'm the expert in my thing. They'll know best, you know, like now I, I kind of have a different mindset, but in the beginning, I think it's so scary to let go, to give the information, but then trust that someone else is going to do the the right thing with it right like yeah they'll they'll do of course it's also their job they want to do a good job obviously but in the beginning that was very scary for me that someone was going to write about me and people were going to read it i think i often think about um how scared i would be to write something put it out there and then people actually look at it and read it that's so scary but being interviewed can also be a bit scary like what if i 
sound kind of silly and then <laughs> everybody and their mom's gonna read it in the newspaper <laughs> i mean I, i totally understand that and i think that i mean sometimes there is a risk because there are publications out there that do take people at their worst moments and publish those things um hopefully you know the publication that whoever is speaking to the journalist you know has some empathy and will understand okay this person said this thing and this is not what they meant and i'm not going to publish this this thing just because it was like flashy and it's going to get the clicks. Mm -hmm. But that because I think when you speak to someone, you can get a sense of, you know, what they actually mean to say and what they're just sort of saying in passing or they're saying by mistake. And, and in terms of, you know, misspeaking, I think some magazines at least also, you know, have a fact-checking process and where they would go back to a source just to make sure, okay, is everything here correct? Um, so yeah, there are often checks in place to make sure that, people don't get misrepresented, but misrepresent misrepresentation, unfortunately, does happen. So mm -hmm. it, I, I completely understand the fear um, that some of my sources may have in talking to a journalist because you are being very vulnerable in that moment. Mm -hmm. Because Yeah, maybe we can skip to, I'll come back to a question, but because we already mentioned, or you already mentioned it, um, how, you know, they're fact checkers and stuff like that. Um, How many people are usually involved in the entire process? Like you're the one who interview, like sets up interviews, does the interviews and does the writing and stuff, right? But do you also do all the fact checking um, or do you have like an editor? Like, do you have to be a specific fact checker or is this just another scientist? How many people usually work on average on like a publication or on, you know, an article? It super depends. Um, at the very least, it's me and an editor, but this is rare. So this is usually for either like a short online piece or a blog post where, you know, you just write something, an editor kind of just looks through it, through it for major errors and, um, you know, structural things and then publishes it. And that's, and, and in those cases, the onus is on the journalist and that one editor to, to fact check. So it's kind of the least, the least amount of official fact checking, I guess. But then usually I think there's, there's a lot more people involved in that. And the big difference is with online or for print. So the process for print is usually a lot more rigorous than online. When with online, there's usually me, an editor, and then a copy editor slash fact checker. So, you know, you add one more person to that process and that person goes through, looks for things like grammatical errors. And they also go through all the links or all the footnotes I put in to link to all the facts that are in the article to make sure that they're correct. And then with print, there's usually like four or more people that look at it. It's like me, several editors, and then a separate fact checker and a separate copy editor. And I'm also, you know, sometimes working with an art team that will, will work together on infographics and graphics and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I guess it can range from like me and one person, which as I mentioned is often, you know, a very rare case um, to me and like a whole team of people. I personally, I find a lot more, a lot more confidence in the process when it's not just me and one other person, mm -hmm. because the more eyes you have on something, the more, the more chances you have to find something that's, that's incorrect. Um, and I guess just to, on your point about fact checking, I think, so there are designated fact checkers who it's their job just to go mm -hmm. through an article and check everything. Sometimes that also includes going back to the sources, calling them up again, making sure that you know, what they were quoted as saying is what they actually said or what they meant to say. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, as a journalist, I think fact-checking as you go is also important. So that's just a part of my process as well to like make sure that as I'm writing, I know where everything came from. And it's really frustrating when I've written something and that there's one fact 
that somehow I've written down on the page, but I can't remember where I came from. And then I have to go through all my notes again <laughs> and find where that thing was. And how long does it usually, again, I, I bet it super depends again from like online or um, print, but on your day-to-day schedule, if you, let's say you set up an interview, you're interviewing the person, how long does it take for this interview or this article then to see like the light of day? <laughs> Is it weeks is it days is it months like how long does it usually take yes it depends it can be anywhere from a few days which is sort of a simple story these are usually sort of like online news stories that are tied to a new study that came out or a story that's linked to some current event that's going on whereas with longer features in print or even online sometimes it can be a year Sometimes it can be more than a year. And wow. a lot of times it's also, yeah. I mean, it's also because of the like magazine print schedules, right? Like they're also like scheduling in certain articles and they want to make sure that they have a good mix of different kinds of science in, in each issue. And there's a lot of things that you can't sort of predict ahead of time. So several months to a year, I would say for, for longer features um, okay. or more. I don't know. I, I also know colleagues who have waited several years before something got published. So Oh, wow. It can be a waiting game. Yeah. But then, oftentimes you have many things going at once. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm just imagining interviewing um, someone and it's, you know, like, oh, you're really excited about it. You want to publish it and, you know, like you pitch it and it's accepted and yay. And then in the meantime, a new study comes out. Do you have to then go back and interview more people? You know, because sometimes people work on similar things, right? I would assume that if it takes many, many months, science is also something that, you know, there's a lot of papers and, you know, pop to perish, you got to like put that stuff out there. If new things come out, um, will you then have to go back and interview more people, for example, especially if there's maybe something new or something different about it? So usually, I mean, with several months, it's usually not an issue because also with science, while it is quick, like the publication process often takes a really long time too. Sure. So if someone hasn't told me about it already, you know, in a few months, that paper is probably not going to be published. But there have been times, yeah, when like some new study comes out and I need to, we need to include that because it's very relevant to the story or you know, if it has been almost a year, I'll often have to call up the source again to make sure what they told me a year ago is still current. And, and sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. I've had a colleague too, who, who wrote a story, I think it was like several years before it got published, he had to just go back and do a lot of reporting all over again, because a lot changes in, in a few years. And I mean, that's just the way it is. There's also the fact that like, sometimes you send in an article and you wait several months for the edit, and then you just forget that article like you forget some of the details of it because you've been mm -hmm. doing other things in the meantime so you, you almost have to relearn what, what what you wrote about as well so yeah <laughs> how do you find out what's really like hot right now i mean sometimes i read articles and i'm like oh my god like that just happened like how do they know about this already like is writing like a, an article about this this must take some time in preparation, but the study just came out, you know? So I'm often, my mind is often blown how quick journals can work. Like, do you investigate yourself or do you get approached by researchers or universities being like, hey, this paper is, you know, in the pipelines. Do you want to write about this? Or how is the process? How do you know what to even 
write about? Do you just like <laughs> troll Twitter and look like, oh, <laughs> like this person is interesting or well, how does it work? I think it's a mix of a lot of things. So I guess just one small kind of technical thing is that journalists often get a list of papers that are going to come out in like a few days or a week before they come out so that there's this kind of like embargo period where you can look at the article, you can write about it, you can share it with sources, but it hasn't been published for the public yet. So that's probably why it seems like, oh, this paper just came out. How did they get the article? It's because they had some time to do it beforehand. But in terms of where I get my ideas, yeah, sometimes it's new papers. Sometimes it's emails from scientists. I always appreciate when a scientist like you know emails me several months before their paper comes out because that gives me time to you know really make a much more interesting story than if I have the paper three days ahead of time when I'm really rushing to to like do all the reporting and write this thing up. And conferences is also a big place where you can, you know, also sort of learn about big changes that are happening in the field, things people are really excited about. You know, you want to go to the room where all the people are, because obviously like something mm -hmm. really hot is going on in there. Yeah. And sometimes things come from my editors as well. They say, you know, because they also like have their own view on like what's going on. They say, you know, look into this thing and then I do my research and then come back with a kind of story proposal and then we go forward from there. So It's really a mix. And I think also interviewing scientists for one story often leads to a second story because they're either doing other cool stuff in their lab or, you know, maybe the story that I was working on that was about this one study is part of a bigger story because there has been a lot of really cool activity that's been happening in this area of science. That's So it's time to sort of write a feature about X topic because this topic, the scientists are really... Um, making a lot of headway in that area too. So I guess all that to say, it's it's not one place. It comes from a lot of different places and sort of just. Mm -hmm. And if you, let's say you go to a conference and you find something that you think this is cool, I want to write about this. Is it that you are working as a freelancer and then you pitch something and if that journal that you approach doesn't want it, you can go somewhere else? Because if you like, let's say really interested in it you really want to write about it or is it if you work for a journal let's say full-time or like under contract and stuff and they say no nah, no that doesn't really fit or we don't really want that is this story then just dead <laughs> like how how do you usually deal with that um so i don't know how it happens when you're on staff at a publication maybe it just does does just die but as a freelancer Yeah, I have the freedom to, if somebody doesn't want it, to pitch it elsewhere. So I think, yeah, I think that's that's a big difference. And that's one of the nice things about being a freelancer. You can write for various different magazines. And um, oftentimes an editor won't want an idea, not because the idea itself is not interesting, but because they've already written, they've already had like four features on this topic. And, you know, it's they don't mm -hmm. want another feature on this topic right now, even if this might be cool. So there's like sort of factors outside The story itself um, that contributes. So it's nice to have that flexibility to, to pitch to other places. Being your own boss must be great at points, <laughs> but there must also be some kind of, you know, uncertainty. I know we talk a lot or on this podcast, we talk a lot about uncertainty and future as a scientist. You know, you don't know where you're going to end up, if you're still going to have a contract, so you're still going to have a job, if you have to move, you know, there's a lot of, of that, of course. Do you ever, when you talk to scientists, when you interview them, do you ever think, oh, I kind of miss that, you know, I at least had like a contract, I knew uh, what I was going to do for the next two years and, and now as a freelancer I don't do freelance full-time I do some freelancing so I never have to worry about like this is my only source of income 
you know what I mean? Like, um, what would you say is more, where did you feel more secure as a scientist or as a freelance writer? Or is there a difference or not at all? I mean, I think that's hard for me to compare because I was never a full-time scientist. I was just a master's mm -hmm. student, so I wasn't making much money anyway. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's I not feel security. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, academia is these days just as difficult as some other fields to make it into. It's quite hard to get tenure or whatnot. I think perhaps a better comparison for me right now would be comparing myself to like a staffer on a publication mm -hmm. because there, you know, you do have a full-time job and it comes with the security of a full-time job. And initially I wanted that, but now that I've been doing this for several years and I feel really secure in my business, um, I'm actually grateful that I'm a freelancer and not a full-time staffer because in media things are just changing all the time. People are getting laid off all the time. And like for me, If a magazine's budget decreases one year, okay, it might reduce my income a little bit, but I have like a handful of other magazines that I'm writing for. So it's no big deal for me. Whereas, you know, people that I know, they get laid off from their job that they've been at for like five, 10, 15 years, and you're kind of lost and you have to either look for a new job in a climate where it's difficult to look for a new job or you have to start off from the beginning as a freelancer. So I think. I think it's important to have a business mindset as a freelancer and it can be hard and it is hard at the beginning, but I, now I feel very secure in, in my job and I feel very secure in my income. And, um, I feel like this was the, this was the right choice for me and everyone's different. No, it's, it's nice to hear though. You know, I mean, I talked to lots of scientists who left academia and they like, haven't looked back, you know, and not to say that people should just leave and, you know, abandon and do something else. Um, because I do sometimes have, Because I also talk to lots of scientists um, for, for my job. And sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, that could be me, you know? Like sometimes I remember, I kind of remember things more positively than they maybe were. You know what I mean? Like I was also like a master's student, but I had like three jobs to make to make rent and food and stuff. And now I don't have to do that anymore. Of course, when you're a student, you know, things things are different. You have student jobs and stuff. But Sometimes I forget about that and I think, oh, maybe I should have done a PhD. Then I could just like work as a scientist full time. And then I remember like, oh, no, maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's so interesting to see where people who went to, to like grad school or even like master, master students who graduate, where they end up and how, how differently it is. And I know no, more and more people who go into writing, which I think is really awesome but the process is um of course a little bit different in germany i would say one of my friends is now like interning for a news like a science newspaper in germany and it was really really hard and in the beginning you just like don't get paid like almost at all <laughs> and she has a phd you know like it's really difficult to enter the field here and talking to you it sounds um a little bit like more encouraging where I'm thinking like it can work and people can be like really happy and not just not just struggle you know you said in the beginning can be difficult but I like to sometimes also hear positive <laughs> experience of someone who's really happy and I think I can I can really tell that you're really happy <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I wouldn't say it's like rainbows and butterflies all the mm -hmm. time but in general you know I I enjoy the job and I'm happy mm -hmm. with it. And um, yeah, no, in the beginning, it can be hard though, especially internships. I looked like exclusively at internships that were paid, but I know that's also a privilege of like internships in the US or in, in certain parts of the world, they often pay more than they might in Germany or, or where else, wherever else. Although 
I mean, in Germany, come on, like these newspapers should pay their interns. Yeah. Like that's ridiculous. It's mm-hmm. not everyone has the same opportunities either. And that's something that's also just really unfortunate. And like, we need to, yeah, I feel really grateful that I had the opportunities that I did have. So if you could give advice to maybe students or scientists who want to enter the field or thinking about it, do you have any, yeah, any advice on what makes a good science journalist? Like what qualities do you have to have? I would say, I mean, first and foremost, someone who's curious. And I guess, you know, if you're a scientist, you're probably already curious to start with. So, you know, have that going already. And I think the other two would be not being afraid to ask difficult questions to your sources. Um, But at the same time, having empathy. And I think empathy is really important, especially when it comes to covering topics that concern, you know, vulnerable people. I write, I often write about mental health and other health issues, you know, and when you're talking to people in these communities or who may be affected by certain illnesses, I think it's important for journalists to remember that like, it's a privilege to be able to share these people's stories and that we also need to keep in mind, not just accuracy, but like to consider the impact that you telling the story will have on that person after the story is published. Because, you know, for us, the story might end once it's published, but for those people, that story could change your life. So I think being able to have that in mind and empathize with your sources, I think is is, is a really important quality to have. Yeah, journalists can have such a big impact. Like my parents still have an article framed on the wall where I was interviewed for my research. And I think if I'm being really honest my parents they always supported me and they never ever said oh you shouldn't do that or you can't do that like they were very supportive but at the same time they didn't really ask a lot of questions I think they just trusted that I knew what I was doing you know my family we don't ever talk a lot about my classes or my research they sometimes felt intimidated they thought oh I wouldn't understand anyway you know you know like that and then um, an article came out about my work and a lot of things changed after that Because they now saw what I was doing, not directly for me, you know, how I said, like, or how you said you can really be in your head <laughs> when you talk about it. And um, and they saw that other people are also interested in it. And the way they wrote about it was really easy to understand and follow if you, you know, haven't, you don't know anything about the topic. Yeah, they still talk about that. So that felt really nice. <laughs> and it really changed a lot in my family and um, extended family where suddenly people understood what I was doing or they were interested suddenly in what I was doing. Yeah, I mean, journalists had big impact on my life as well. So I think it's a good advice to, to, or to remember that you can have a big impact. Like even with just one article, someone can read that and be like, oh my God, that's amazing. I want to know more about it and then maybe look more into it or, you know, for the person that was interviewed. So yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. <laughs> What do you think or what do you wish you would have known before you started out as a journalist? Is there something that you wish you had known that maybe would have helped you prepare better? Is it good just being open to everything and just seeing what what happens? (laughs) You know, being open to everything and seeing what happens is, of course, nice. Mm -hmm. Just going on that journey. I think it would have been, I mean, I think one thing that I kind of wish for from a formal journalism education is sort of learning how everything works before having to, you know, just jump into it. I think I learned how everything works in terms of the editorial process as I went along, especially in the early years, because I came from a non-journalistic background. I just had the student newspaper to to sort of have as a, as a base. Other than that, um, I wish I had known, and people had told me, but it really only hit me 
later on, like how important relationships are in this industry. And I guess, I mean, that's the same with any other industry. It's really important to build relationships with, with editors and other people, because once you do build those relationships, it's much more, it's much easier to have doors open to you. So to network mm-hmm. is really important, even though I hate networking, but it paid <laughs> off. Um, that's really important. And I think the last thing, and this is more specific to freelancing, is I wish I had learned about all the business related stuff and mm-hmm. had known how to put myself in a business mindset from day one, because it was only, I think for me, the turning point in my career is when I went to this one like freelance business workshop and just like learned how to build a business that things really turned around. And I found myself being a lot more successful. Um, so yeah, I think those would be the sort of main things that I wish I had known before I started. I mean, I wish someone as if another freelancer had told me about doing taxes as a freelancer. Because <laughs> every time tax season comes around, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> so I think taxes yeah, yeah. for me. <laughs> like prepare, you know, like really write down everything and... <laughs> Um, the two questions I always ask. <laughs> yeah, they are. But two two questions they always ask at the end. Maybe your your answer will be taxes. Who knows? What is the worst part about your work that you're doing, or the work that you're doing? Like, what is the thing you enjoy the least? Is there anything? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm <laughs> um, just trying to think. I mean, I think the worst part is also one of the best parts. I mean, I personally find the writing process really difficult. And it like, it's like pulling teeth. When I have to write a draft, it just, it's so hard. And it's, yeah, I find it very grueling. There are some writers out there who love writing and love the process of writing. I don't think I'm one of those people, or at least I haven't found the thing that really works for me. But I love having written and I love like seeing my writing. So it's like, The process is painful, but finishing that process is is wonderful, and I get this amazing feeling. So I like kind of I think towards that feeling when when I'm writing. Um, but yeah, writing itself can be can be really really difficult. Maybe you already answered this question, but I'm gonna gonna ask anyway. What is your favorite part um, of this job? I think my favorite part is meeting really cool people and hearing about the things that they do. Um, there's nothing like speaking to either a scientist or somebody else who's doing something really interesting, who just loves what they do and is doing something that they feel that's gonna, feel is going to have a really big impact on this world. And also seeing the impact that they're having. It can be, I feel like it's almost intoxicating to like be in the presence of some of these people and just learning things that blow my mind. I think that's something I, I really love about this job. It's, yeah, it never gets old to meet cool people. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, one of my favorite part of your job <laughs> is that I, I told you this before, and I think I told this anecdote before where I, I did a science communication certificate, like a professional certificate. And in one of my classes, they used you and your articles as an example of like good science Still science communication <laughs> in a you know in a journal and i was like i know her and i got a lot of praise for knowing you <laughs> it's like really cool it's like yeah she is so great <laughs> and then we talked about talked about your work a little bit in this class <laughs> that was really cool very, for me. <laughs> very 
very flattered by that. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, because I, I obviously um, check out what you're working on and um, I'll put everything in the show notes, but you had like a website and stuff. And I think one of the pictures um, of your, it was like a, was it artificial intelligence or like a, there was like a robot on yeah. the cover. Yeah. And they used that one and I recognized it immediately from like your website. I was like, ah, her, I know her. That was, that was really lovely to see your writing being used as a good example you know like that yeah that just made me really happy for you <laughs> thank you so much I mean I, I it's funny because I it always kind of surprises me when people actually read my stuff I don't know that sounds really mm -hmm. stupid but it's it's always very nice to hear that people have read something and enjoyed it or you know felt yeah. something from it or had yeah I know what you mean like I sit here uh, and do my silly little podcast but then sometimes when you look at you know the stats and you see that people are actually listening to it or you see people tweeting about it, you're like oh my god people are actually listening or like they're subscribing right. like it blows my mind because i'm just doing this because i'm also very curious and i love talking to people and finding out what they do and what they're passionate about but then when other people consume that it's really surprising to me <laughs> Yeah. So I know what you mean. It's like, of course, you're producing something, you hope people will read it or listen to it and enjoy it. But when it actually happens, you're like, oh my God. For sure. That's crazy. For sure. <laughs> I totally get that feeling. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking to me, um, especially early in the day. I mean, let's be honest, not that early, but. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> and I always love talking to you, as you know. And what I enjoy when I talk to like people I've known for many years is that I still learn new things. I say this, at, I'm amazed at the end of every episode that I learned something new, even though I've known these people for so long. Last time I had Lynn Foss on and I've had her on several science communication projects and she said things that I had no idea she was doing. It's like, this is amazing. How did I not know this? So um, it's also very rewarding for me to getting to know you better. And if people are listening and they learn something about you and science journalism, that's amazing. I will put all your information in the show notes. So if you want to see what Diana is working on, <laughs> you'll be able to find out. And yeah, thanks so much again for re-recording with me and i'm pretty sure i will see you again soon for sure, <laughs> and, for sure. Uh, nope. and for everybody who's listening thanks so much for tuning in we'll be back next month with a really cool topic um, as always you'll find everything on the website and social media so thanks again for all the support and yeah goodbye diana bye francie bye some coffee ready the others Great. can't see me but you can see me so if you <laughs> if my face is hidden <laughs> have you had your morning coffee yet no no, no. oh um, god how do you function i actually haven't been drinking coffee for a while <laughs> oh my god okay i tried to cut back for a while because i got um i don't know if i ever told you this but i had caffeine poisoning what i didn't know that was a thing I had to go to an actual doctor if you um because I got like heart rhythm dysfunction and I went mm -hmm. to the doctor and yeah um because I also have low blood pressure and all the, you know like if you have a lot of coffee it adds to it and it was when I was um an au pair 
you know, you get up early, you have a kid there right away. You're like, oh God. So you drink some coffee and then you bring them to the nursery, have another cup of coffee and all that. I was like 19 and had, I don't know, maybe, you know, these coffee pots just from a regular coffee maker, like Mm -hmm. at least one and a half, like a day. (laughs) And he was Uh, like, you cannot uh... drink so much coffee. Are you crazy? (laughs) That's probably the reason. <laughs> that is the Let's reason. That's a bit of an absurd amount. Yeah. It stopped immediately when I cut back. So there okay. were no low prolonged yeah. side effects. But I thought that That's was um, crazy. People always think like, what? That is a thing? It's like, yes, that is a thing. And then uh, one time in my biology class, when I studied in America, we had a TA who at the beginning of every tutorial, they... They did like a something that that was a little bit different from what we talked about in the class. Just, you know, something interesting. And he did talk about caffeine poisoning. And I was like, that happened to me. And he was so excited. Oh, <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah. It's always good to have an example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, maybe not drinking coffee is, is pretty good. But 